Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a cookbook author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning how to elongate our health span, hearing real women share how they learn to love their bodies, or hacking travel points to get free luxury hotel stays. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if you want to know more about any of those topics, just scroll on back in the archives. On today's episode, we're going to get into some little discussed elements of living with chronic illness. My guest today is Megan O'Rourke, the author of the beautiful new book, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. Megan is a poet and longtime journalist whose writing has appeared in The Atlantic Monthly, The New Yorker, where she formerly was an editor, The New York Times, and many more. She's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and other awards and currently serves as the editor of the Yale Review. This episode is really about highlighting the often hidden parts of chronic illness while offering both pragmatic tips for anyone suffering from chronic illness to feel better, but also anyone who wants to understand what causes chronic illness or how to help people in their lives that are currently dealing with chronic illness. Megan is in the unique position of having both a powerful personal story, but also having interviewed experts and kept up with the latest research about chronic illness for years through her job as a journalist. On this episode, we talk about her own chronic illness journey, including how she finally got a diagnosis, how having a child impacted her chronic illness, the practices that she found helped her healing the most, and the things that she tried that didn't help at all, the deep loneliness of chronic illness and how she deals with that, and her best advice for vetting which alternative practices are worth trying. We also talk about why people often get multiple chronic illnesses at the same time, what causes chronic Lyme, long COVID, and other lingering chronic disease from acute infections, the complicated role stress plays in chronic disease, the best way to shore up your body to prevent acquiring a chronic illness, and the future of chronic disease treatment. While this episode sounds like it might be heavy and we do dive into very real and intense topics, it's actually much more fun than it might seem. Megan is such a lovely, introspective, and kind person and she really gives off the best big sister energy. The message of this conversation is ultimately quite hopeful and empowering and important, and I really can't wait to hear your thoughts. Definitely share anything that resonated with you on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and Megan is at Megan O-R, and Megan is spelled with an H. If you're new to the pod, do not forget to follow or subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We've got an amazing one coming up with Secrets for Gorgeous Hair, an episode all about easy ways to be unbelievably charismatic, whether you're at a dinner party or work, and a dive into the future of gut health. So definitely make sure that you hit that subscribe button so you do not miss any of it. All right, without further ado, here's Megan. Okay, Megan, I am so glad to have you here. I was just telling you before we started recording that I am such a huge fan of your writing and I'm excited to be talking to you today. I'm really excited to be here too, Liz. Thanks so much for having me. So let's just get right into your story. Can you tell me about when your experience with chronic illness began? Yeah. One of the funny things about my story is that it's hard to pinpoint a precise origin, but Shortly after I graduated from college in my early 20s, I started experiencing really strange symptoms, mostly neurological. I remember vividly walking to work one day and being kind of beset by these strange electric shock sensations that traveled all the way up and down my body, you know, kind of like 
oh, it was just really horrible and coming and going. And I never knew where they were. And they were severe enough that my legs were spasming and I had to stop and kind of rub them and rest until the sensation passed. And just over the next decade, really, experienced a wide variety of symptoms, including brain fog and fatigue that came and went, right? Some days I was fine. And some days I was really enervated and not myself or in a lot of pain. And this went on for more than a decade before I got any kind of diagnosis or answers. And what motivated you? Like, at what point were you like, oh, this just isn't in my head. This is something I should actually go see doctors about. Yeah. Well, I started going to see doctors in my 20s, you know, when these electric shocks happened all over my day, I went to my doctor and he was like, I don't know, we'll run some tests. I'm not really sure what that is. And the tests all came back negative. And he was like, well, maybe you have dry skin, you know, maybe you're a little stressed at work. right? And so for years, I was just at my regular checkup saying to my doctor, I just don't think I feel like really tired a lot of the time. And she would talk, you know, I had this high paced job, and I was not sleeping a lot. And she said, Well, I think, you know, you need to make some changes and try to sleep better. So, you know, there was this kind of lackadaisical effort on my part, but I really absorbed the notion in my 20s that this was just me and that maybe everyone felt this way. And I was sort of a special complainer. You know, I think that was really my fear, right? But it was after my mother died when I turned 32. And it had been a really grueling few months, as you can imagine. And I got a virus in the week after she died. And I just didn't get better. And what had been these intermittent symptoms began to be unrelenting and really impact my ability to work. I had to cancel lots of things. I wasn't able to do work I'd promised to do. And I started searching in earnest for answers at that point and was led, you know, step-by-step to a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease that I did have, um, which began my interest in thinking about chronic illness as a kind of topic that we don't talk about very much and that we're not comfortable with as a culture. Yeah. And and a lot more happened after that. (laughs) There was sort of a cluster of diagnoses in the end, but, uh, you know, all told it was like 20 years of searching that has been quite a quest. What was your eventual diagnosis? There was a few things, right? Yeah. So one of the things I write about in my book is that something I really didn't understand when I started on my journey was that often these diagnoses can kind of cluster. So the kinds of chronic illnesses I really focus on on in my book are autoimmune diseases and other diseases of the nervous system and immune system that can go hand in hand. So Often, once you get an autoimmune disease, you end up with more than one of them. And often people who have things like autoimmune disease might have something called dysautonomia or dysregulation of your nervous system, which can be a condition like POTS. So in my case, I have autoimmune thyroiditis. I also have POTS, which I can tell you more about. And I ended up having Lyme disease that had not been diagnosed or treated for probably that whole 15 years which I finally got diagnosed and treated for and which made me a lot better. I also have a genetic condition that kind of predisposes me to some of these sort of autonomy, the dysautonomia piece. So as you can see, it's this really complicated, I'm throwing these jargony terms at you, but it's like this complicated cluster of symptoms that anyone who's living in this world will have heard of a lot of these because they do often tend to overlap. 
I do think that clustering though is so interesting. And I, I kind of want to talk about it more because I think it's part of what leads us to be like, oh, she's just a hypochondriac or she's just being hysterical because you're like, do you really have six different things at one time? But from what you're saying, from what I understand, there's actually science behind why they group together. Totally. And I will tell you, I myself was like that, right? So that I, I wondered, well, how could I really have all of these different things wrong with me? Surely that some of this is in my head. So I, that's part of why I wanted to talk about this in my book, which is, and even now, to be honest, when I tell people, sometimes I just give them like one diagnosis if I don't have them. Because I think like they're going to probably suspect that it's all I'm really inventing everything. Well, I'm like, yeah. well, I have this and that and this and that, right? So <laughs> you're getting the special treatment. Um, but um, yeah, the, the science behind it is one thing I didn't understand at all, and I think is still under-realized, is that the immune system and the nervous system are kind of beautifully entangled um, and com- in complicated ways. And so when you're under chronic stress, your immune system is changing all the time, and it goes through this really complicated dance um, anytime you experience an intense bout of stress where it ratchets up and ratchets downward, or actually first ratchets downward, then ratchets up, or I'm getting it wrong. I think it ratchets up and then downward, but it needs to kind of go through this complicated hormone uh, choreography. And the more times it happens, the more likely a mistake gets made, and your immune system kind of gradually ratchets into dysfunction and sometimes overdrive. And that can be an autoimmune disease, but that could maybe be allergy. I mean, it can be all kinds of things, right? And one of the things too about the immune system is that it's so individual that my symptoms from something going wrong might look really different from your symptoms. And the immune system's in all parts of the body. So it could feel like you have all these different symptoms that maybe do have some underlying connected causes, but it looks like you have 12 different symptoms that seem totally unrelated. So, you know, because these systems are entangled, if you have an autoimmune disease, you you may also have one of these nervous system disorders of the, the autonomic nervous system, which is kind of controls unconscious stuff that we do, like breathe and blood pressure. The final reason, though, that, and I think this has become more clear to all of us in the past two years, that there's some interconnection is that a lot of this dysfunction in different parts of the body can be driven by infection. So a virus can come along and trigger something like an autoimmune disorder and POTS, this thing that I have, which is dysautonomia. And those often do go hand in hand. So they're not necessarily distinct. They're kind of interconnected puzzle pieces, if that makes sense. Okay. So just to kind of drill into that a little bit, to the first point, it's almost like the the idea that we experience stress and the more we experience stress, the more we're triggering this immune system cycle and it can make a mistake. It's like writing a sentence like a hundred times. And like, if you write it a hundred times, you're more likely to make an error in that sentence than if you write it 50 or 25, right? Totally. Yes. Just the more you're doing it. Like, cause you know, the example people always give is that, you know, in the old days we would be hanging out in the savannah and like a lion would come, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't yeah, know why yeah. everyone always gives this example. Like literally every book I read, it's like a lion will chase you and stress will help you. You know, it, it, it changes your body so you can run away. Your heart pumps faster. Your digestion stops so that you're not using energy there. You know, your, your immune system ratchets up because maybe that lion's going to slash you and it's going to need to have lots of immune cells ready to go heal that wound. 
So that makes sense. But the problem is we live these wild lives where we're constantly stressed and every email might make us stressed. And then we get phone calls at, you know, 11 at night to deal with work, whatever. Yeah. Right? So we're just constantly doing that. So exactly more chances for it to go wrong. We weren't really designed to live that way. And then to the latter point, it's just the idea, which feels very straightforward, but maybe like under talked about that if you have a virus and it's attacking one part of your body, there's no reason it would just like stay there and not have other negative effects on your body. Yeah. And it it can really get into your vape. Like one thing we've learned about COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, is it can get into your vagus nerve, which control is sort of the connection in some ways between your immune system and your nervous system. There's evidence that if we cut people's vagus nerve, or we do it to animals, not people, but you know. Yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like their immune systems change, right? So this is like, I think huh. of it as a frontier of medicine that's just starting to get explored where a lot of the researchers I was talking to were at this kind of pioneering avant-garde of really looking at how infection doesn't affect all of us the same way, but affects us maybe very, very differently person to person. And also, and this is the wild part, maybe affects you differently if you get it right as you're experiencing a really stressful life event, right? Like the loss of a parent or right that there are these oh that's interesting right it's like one researcher called it successive hits right like it's not just one thing but maybe one thing plus another plus another and you end up with this constellation of problems okay so my brain i'm a hypochondriac and we're going to talk about hypochondria and how it plays into chronic illness. And I think for the most part, most people with chronic illness are like, stop calling me a hypochondriac, but I really am one. <laughs> um, that's a real thing. And I'm listening and I'm like, well, okay, how do I control to have that not happen to me? Is it something that you think you can control for? Can you do stuff so that you're one of the p- people who gets a tick bite and then, you know, doesn't have any long-term effects from that or gets COVID and is fine later? Or is it just kind of like a bad luck thing? I think at this point in time, it's bad luck. Oh, no. I, I do. I Megan. hate to tell <laughs> I know, I know. But look, I mean, being generally healthy, sleep, sleep is the big thing you can do for yourself as a, as a hypochondriac. Make sure you get lots of sleep and lots of fresh water and fresh food, right? But I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know. But right now, what's so scary about long COVID is that we don't really know why some people get it and some people don't. Back to this successive hits idea, we do know that if you have Epstein-Barr virus, when you get like active, we all get Epstein-Barr virus and most of us, 95% of us, it kind of just hangs out in our bodies. Is that, that's mono, right? That's mono. But if we're really stressed, like it can reactivate. And so stress is the theme here. Um, And if you have it reactivated when you get COVID, it is shown that you're more likely to get long COVID. I think that's like a pretty clear connection. So, you know. Don't be stressed. Don't be stressed. (laughs) If you get COVID, I would go to a doctor and get tested for COVID and Epstein-Barr virus if you're able to. Oh, that's interesting. I think they should be telling everyone to do that. Um, And if you happen to have Epstein-Barr virus when you have active, it has to be active. When you have COVID, ask for antivirals. And Mm. actually that has been shown to help. So there are these steps we are starting. No, I like that. I like action steps. (laughs) We're going to learn more and more. But yes, more and more action steps in the next years, we hope. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. 
Look, the science is very clear. Sexual wellness is a huge part of overall health. You've probably heard me go on and on about the health benefits of masturbation, but it's truly so good for not only our mental health, but our immune systems, our hormone health, and more. It's honestly this easy, actually fun thing that you can do daily that has all of these huge benefits. Think of prescribing yourself a daily orgasm as like taking a multivitamin, except that it's even more enjoyable to actually do. Of course, we all need allies in our sexual journeys, which is why I am so excited to introduce you to Dame. Dame is a female-founded sexual wellness brand that uses science. Yes, actually, one of the co-founders is a MIT-trained engineer to create products designed to bring pleasure to people with vulvas everywhere. Their products look so chic, like I'm more than happy to keep mine out on the bedside table. The colors are just gorge. The Eva is Dame's flagship product. It's a hands-free couples vibrator used to provide clitoral stimulation during penetrative sex. It looks kind of like, like it has these little wings and a cute little tiny body. It's adorable, honestly, and a game changer for couples play because it's fun to spice it up, right? Like, let's be playful. Let's experiment. Let's mix it up. And then there's the air, which is new and fabulous. It does little air puffs. In the reviews on the site, a number of people mention melt your face off orgasms. And I would have to say that I agree. We have talked about the Alu Lubricant lots before, but it's one of the best non-toxic lubes that I've found. Just great ingredients, a super silky feel, and it's pH balanced so that you won't get any UTIs or yeast infections. And finally, the Arousal Serum. Holy cow, this is such a game-changing product. It uses all natural ingredients to generate a tingly, warming sensation. It's not burning at all. Do not worry. And it just heightens everything else that you do after, whether it's alone or with a partner. The ingredients are amazing. You can lick it, you can touch it, and you don't have to worry about it on your sensitive parts. But truly, the effects? Wow. My friend used it for the first time last week, and she texted me, and she called it a literal effing game changer. Try it out and thank me later. If you want to try the Air, the Eva, and the Alu, and the Arousal Serum, I highly recommend the Night Inset, which has all four for $35 off. And you can use my discount on top of that for even more savings. Just visit www.dameproducts.com slash healthier together, and my 15% off discount will automatically be applied at checkout. You can use my code for anything on the site, including if you want the full set or just to buy any of the products that I mentioned on their own or anything else on the site that I didn't mention. Again, that's dameproducts.com slash healthier together. I cannot wait to hear what you try. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay. Let's talk about the stress thing for a second, because I think that is such an interesting dynamic because like you said, stress really does play a physiological like proven role in chronic illnesses, but it is also the factor that people use to dismiss chronic disease and tell people that it's just in their head and even cause people, I think, to self-question like, well, am I just stressed? Is is this real? And so I'm curious if you have any suggestions for navigating the place of stress and all of this. Yeah. So I think the thing it's so hard and complicated to talk about stress because we tend to talk about it in very black and white terms, like you've just laid out, where we'll say on the one hand, 
you know, often people who didn't know me very well would say, well, probably you're just stressed or you're a type A personality as if I had caused my disease, right? And I always felt this was their way of letting themselves off the hook from having to worry about it and also maybe reassuring themselves that this that they wouldn't get to it, them, yeah. right? Because it's really scary. It's like the long COVID thing. It's so scary. So I think we we really need to, and then some people don't want to talk about stress at all, but um, we need to move to this more nuanced place where we can really think about stress as a factor, but not this be all and end all. So in my case, when those people said stuff like that to me, I was like, ah, stop talking to me about stress. Like, this is not me. I didn't cause it. Something is going on that's beyond my control. But at the same time, privately, I knew that when I had a really stressful week ahead, my symptoms often got a little bit worse, right? And that actually one of the really fascinating pieces of research that I came across is that even anticipation of stress kind of activates your immune system because your body is very wise. Like it's looking for ways to protect you. So it activates immune activity in anticipation that something bad might happen. So I worried though, when I was first sick, that maybe that was evidence that this was imagined, right? Because why was I always getting sick just when I was really had a lot to do? But the more I researched and talked to researchers and scientists, the clearer it became that this is this really complicated interlocking reality where it's really hard as a chronically ill patient, because as my husband said to me, the disease is made worse by stress, but then you can go down this rabbit hole where I was always trying to avoid stress and it was so stressful to avoid stress and then I was stressed and then you know, I'm running to the, I was like going to acupuncture, but I was late to catch the bus. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be late to acupuncture. Yeah. Sick, right? And so you can really go down this yeah. rabbit hole, right? And so I think the main thing to know is like, we actually don't understand that much about it. So we return to common sense. What does common sense tell you? Common sense tells you like, if something really doesn't feel good for your body and your mind and your life, like try to avoid that and minimize it. But we're also resilient, right? And so when someone is really sick to the point that stressors are making them even sicker, it's because something else is going on that has undone their resilience, right? And so it's not those tiny stresses. I finally said to my doctor, are these, it's like waiting for the bus gonna make me sicker and she was like no <laughs> that's not the problem I just want to give you a hug <laughs> I, know. But right, I mean right I have to be honest here right because yeah. it's like I'm trying to animate something of this internal experience I think a lot of us go through for sure is there anything you would say to somebody who's listening and they are like is it stress or is something wrong with me how do I figure that out yeah, I really do think keeping a kind of journal or record, um, like almost like a log of what's going on and your symptoms can be so helpful because a lot of times I wanted it to be the case that I was feeling better because I had done something, but actually that particular thing hadn't helped me. And in other cases, there were things making me feel worse that I didn't even register. Some of them were food, some of them were, I don't know, just funny triggers that I have. So I think in terms of stress, like one of the, one of the fundamental problems is that we have to own up to the lack of control, right? But the next thing is to try to sort of make it all concrete for yourself. So look at stress in your life as one of those things you're keeping track of and see, does it make you feel worse? Like, do you feel worse the day after something really stressful? And then also, what are the things that really bother you that actually impact your body because they might not be even what you think they are some stress 
is actually good for us, right? It's actually yeah, hormesis. It's, it's not right, right. So you know, it's 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 always more complex in reality than I think our current frameworks can account for. Well, and it's so different person to person. Like I think some people are like, oh, you should like go live on a farm that's quiet. But some people find that stressful and like want to be in the middle of the city. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So I think I think figuring the nice thing about the journal idea is it helps you figure out what your individual experience is, which is going to be so different than anybody else's. Let's talk about the hypochondriac thing for a second, because I know that you've shared that you were worried about being viewed as a hypochondriac. And I think that's a really big fear of a lot of people with chronic illness. Did you make peace with that? How did you make peace with that? Is there anything that you learned from that that would be helpful to share? Yeah, it's really interesting. I didn't, I, sh- I write about this in the book and I've been thinking about writing about it more, but you know, when I think about my childhood, I wonder if I was like a little bit of a hypochondriac, but at the same time now I wonder, oh, maybe my body knew I had this genetic condition because a lot of what I experienced were these funny pains. So I was sort of preoccupied at different times of my childhood with some of these things. But that meant that when I started getting sick, the symptoms were so vague that I kind of assumed maybe I was a hypochondriac, right? And then I think when I got sicker, the fear became others would see me as a hypochondriac because at that point it was so clear that these symptoms had some real origin that was mysterious. But something I talk about a lot that's related to hypochondria is you know, when you're living with chronic illness, you are living not only with the disease, but also your fears about the disease, right? And especially if it is one of these, you know, coming and going diseases, remitting and relapsing, we call them, which are a lot of autoimmune diseases, you can have a great spell in which you might be very preoccupied by the fear that the symptoms are going to come back. And when they do come back, you might think, oh my God, is this going to be as bad as that time? Or So there's a lot of managing of our own understanding that we can be sick, which is really like hypochondria. So I think one thing I've tried to learn to do over the years is separate out what's happening, what evidence I have, and then my fears and the story I'm telling myself about that evidence. Um, and this became really important. And I relate to you on this front when I was pregnant because I was high risk, partly because of these autoimmune things. But at the same time, my everything looked great. The baby looked great. And yet I was so worried something would happen to him. I just kept imagining something terrible would happen. And I really did finally go talk to a medical psychiatrist who specializes in helping people with chronic illnesses. And she said something great. She was like, just always go off the last piece of evidence. You know, just just pay attention to the last piece of evidence and then be like, that's what I know and that's what I'm gonna listen to. So I think about that a lot, right? Like sometimes now I will get really worried about maybe I'm gonna maybe I have cancer. I'm not, you know, forget the chronic illness. Maybe it's right, right. I can identify the differences between, okay, here's actual symptoms and then here's stories I'm telling myself about those symptoms. That makes sense. And I do find as somebody who has struggled a lot with anxiety. That whenever I am faced with the things I'm scared of, I'm always so much more equipped to deal with them than I ever was in the story I was telling myself in my head. Totally. I think you've just said something so important. Yeah. Yeah. Did I was curious if having a kid changed your relationship with your chronic illness, with your body in any way? Yeah, hugely. God, I could talk about that for hours, <laughs> but I'll try to give you briefly. A, I'll try to give you the brief version. <laughs> 
I was really so used to my body letting me down. Here's another thing that I want to say about the stress and the chronic illness, which is I had come to think of myself as a sickly person. I was like, well, maybe so my body, why, if all this stuff is wrong, like something's just wrong with me, like my body's just not made wrong. And a doctor said to me, look, I actually think you're really strong. And you lived with a tick-borne illness for almost 20 years untreated. And for a lot of that time, you coped okay. And that was just one thing too many, but actually your body is strong. And that is something I want to give listeners is that sometimes people who are sick actually have very strong bodies, right? This is relevant to the pregnancy because when I got pregnant, I was still in that mode of thinking my body was sickly. And I was so scared that my body just wouldn't work, right? It wouldn't do the thing. And I was so used to putting a lot of effort into getting my body to work right that I was kind of astonished that the pregnancy just went along. And this was after, by the way, two years of infertility. So I certainly had had the, when I was sick, I couldn't get pregnant. I'd had that experience of it not working. But it was really powerful, I think, then to just see that once this pregnancy came and it stayed, because I've had miscarriages, this baby and my body just knew what to do. And they just did it that time. It hadn't happened other times, but it just did. And I don't know, there was something really powerful about that. Um, And it made me think that the story we tell ourselves about our bodies is often a fixed one, but our bodies are often very much in flux and their health and their being. and, And actually we need to be more flexible Right. And part of it was watching my body be flexible and create this mm. being and change completely in ways that were sometimes uncomfortable, but sometimes beautiful. And it just reminded me that our bodies are so many more things than we think of them as being. God, imagine if we could take that flexible approach and like apply it to everything in our lives. Like our relationships aren't what they were 20 years ago. Our career and what we think of ourselves in that way isn't what it was. You know, like if we, allowed more room for change and evolution. I just imagine what everything would look like. I know. I know. And by the way, it was fleeting, but it was very powerful. <laughs> you know, and I try to go back to it. I wish I could have like bottled it and sniffed it periodically. <laughs> no, exactly. Like if only we could be that kind to ourselves and others. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Can yeah. we talk about some of the things that you have done, especially like I think in a physical sense, the practices that you have explored, which is a lot to help you get to a state of feeling better in your body. So I would love for you to share maybe two or three things that you found really effective that that changed your body in a positive way. And maybe a few things you tried that were less than effective. I don't know if this counts under practices, but I realized that I was like really sensitive to a few foods and I was eating in a way that was actually making me sicker, but out of a weird idea of health and, you know, why also wanting to be thin or fit, you know, just all these sort of eating disordered, but also just, um, I think this is how I'm supposed to eat, I guess, you know, ideas that, that I had absorbed, but in, I, I had been vegetarian for a long time and I really liked bread and eggs. And it turned out that bread and eggs made me feel really, really sick and created immune responses and that I actually needed a lot more protein. I was really protein deficient. And just the way my body works is it does better with animal protein, which is sort of... Anyway, so I had to reshape my whole idea of food to think of it as sustenance and fuel and medicine and really listen in a way to what my body was telling me about what it needed, what it craved, what it wanted 
And that really changed how I eat and how I, I don't know, approach food in general and in ways that I'm appreciative of, to tell the truth. At the time, it was hard because I was, you know, getting so sick after eating because I was having crazy immune reactions, wild, just having wild immune reactions, I should say. But anyway, so there was a journey there too, between kind of going down a rabbit hole and being scared that food was going to make me sicker to realizing like, no, it was actually the medicine I needed. And so that it's really complicated to talk about. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that you're appreciative of changing your diet in this way, because I think a lot of people might feel resentment after having to cut out things that they really enjoyed or having to limit anything. I did feel a lot of resentment and self-pity at the time. And I still am really sad at the time. But And I'm still sad I can't eat like almond croissants. Um, But I think now I'm really appreciative because I just see how much better I feel. And I'm like, God, imagine I'd never figured this out or have the resources and the help to figure it out. That's really scary to me. The other thing that was really helpful for me personally was acupuncture and Chinese herbs. I think because a lot of my symptoms had to do with my autonomic nervous system and I was in this kind of overdrive state, it really helped manage that. And actually, there's really good evidence that acupuncture can help balance the different parts of the nervous system and immune system and bring them back into a more regulated state. And, you know, as my N of one, I can say that really did work for me. It just was also really nice to go somewhere once a week where someone asked me lots of questions and was really kind and put me in a quiet womb like room. And, you know, I just felt cared for. And turns out there's tons of evidence that feeling cared for really changes your biology. I mean, this is intuitive, but it's actually real. Like you can measure it in biomarkers and stuff. So for me personally, that was a huge thing that that helped a lot. I'm changing my sleep habits. This is a really basic one, but just trying to, and I don't do this last night, I stayed up late watching Netflix, but trying to go to bed before 1030 in particular, it wasn't so much about the amount of sleep, but shifting my sleep earlier in the night just made a big difference to my health in the morning. It was like the same amount of hours, but I was going to bed like at 12 and sleeping till like 730 or eight. And now I go to bed earlier. I believe that you get more deep sleep the earlier in the night that you go to sleep. And my I have an aura ring and it seems to track with that as well. Interesting. That, yeah. So even yeah. if I fall asleep, my husband like fell asleep in front of the TV the other night and he got like an hour of deep sleep, like with his legs up on the couch, like completely in this weird pose while a TV show played in the background, but he got good deep sleep because it was like early in the night. Early in the night. Yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. And so I now try to really go to sleep. A lot, you know, some nights I even go to sleep at like nine, whatever. Um, but <laughs> let's see, um, what didn't really work? I went to see some, you know, alternative doctors who I like in- immediately distrusted, just there was some vibe there that wasn't good. And yeah, just took things and spent money on things that didn't help me. But there were other supplements that really did help me. But I found that for me, it was really following the people I trusted really listening to myself there. I am curious about the vetting of things because you're obviously a journalist. Vetting is part of what you do for a living. And I think there's a lot of difficulty people have with vetting in the wellness world with there's so many supplements, so many different practices. And you you can look for evidence-based 
research, but a lot of times they're not doing studies on things that we don't even necessarily have names for in terms of a diagnosis. So how, how do you navigate that? And how would you recommend somebody else navigate that? Yeah, this is one of the hardest questions. And people ask me about this all the time. And I don't have great answers. And it's so frustrating, right? But I did see one practitioner who gave me really good advice, which was that I had gone to some integrative doctors who I liked, but again, I didn't have that deep trust relationship with. And they had just thrown like tons of supplements at me and I was spending so much money. And it was helping, but it was really unclear like what was going on. And I just was taking so much. Then I saw this guy I really trusted and he said, this is going to take longer, but I want to do one supplement at a time. And he said, and the reason I want to do it is I want to really see what is this doing to your body? And I was like, are you sure? Can I just please take like these three supplements? And he's like, nope, we're doing these like one at a time. We're going to start with the most likely to help you. And so that was really illuminating because I thought, right, you know, we could do it this way. We could just do it more slowly. And also one could do that for oneself, right? Even if with anyone, you could sort of say, I'm going to try piece by piece. I did read a lot. There was a, there's a book that has a, a slightly hokey title, but that I found really, really helpful, which is called From Fatigued to Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I bought it and I read it and I lived with it. And it has a lot of really good information, or so I thought, at least as a, as a non-doctor, I should say, about just like, what fatigue is biologically and how different supplements help. And it helped me understand why I was being recommended certain things. And it really helped me commit to certain supplements that really were helping me. But the vetting, it's its the number one problem, right? Because the whole idea is that everyone's body is different. So we can't really study these things on mass. And also there's just not funding to study supplements because it's not the same kind of market, right? You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. Did you know there are actually two distinct types of blueberries, wild blueberries and ordinary blueberries? You might have seen them in the packages in the freezer section of the grocery store that say wild on them, and that's actually way more important than you might think. When compared to ordinary blueberries, wild blueberries have 33% more anthocyanins, a flavonoid that gives plants their dark purpley blue color and is well studied for its anti-diabetic, anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties, as well as its ability to help with the prevention of cardiovascular diseases. Wild blueberries also have two times more antioxidants, 72% more fiber, and 32% less sugar than ordinary blueberries. And honestly, I think they taste better too. They've never been hybridized or genetically modified to enhance or alter their naturally occurring characteristics. So they have a lot more genetic diversity than a lot of the produce that you might find at the grocery store, And that diversity gives wild blueberries a wonderfully complex, sweet, tart flavor that is utterly addictive. Each berry also tends to be slightly smaller in size than ordinary blueberries, which I find makes them work way better in baked goods. I use them every time I make the healthy blueberry muffins that I recently shared on my Instagram, and they always turn out so good. I also love them in smoothies. Smoothies for me are a time to pack in as many nutrients as possible to start my day off right and to have a flavor that I'm excited to get out of bed for. And wild blueberries check both of those boxes. My favorite right now is a few cups of frozen wild blueberries, spinach, a banana, tahini, vanilla protein powder, cinnamon, sea salt, and water to blend. It is absolute heaven. Wild blueberries are truly wild. Unlike regular blueberries, they're never planted. They grow naturally where Mother Nature put them thousands of years ago, which is honestly so crazy to think about. 
So that means that you can get them fresh if you find yourself in Maine during the summer. But fear not, because 90% of the wild blueberry harvest is flash frozen. You know, I love frozen produce because it often has even more nutrients than fresh since it's frozen at the peak of ripeness and you don't lose nutrients in transit. And in the case of these wonderful nuggets of joy, it means that you can get wild blueberries in the freezer aisle in most grocery stores around the country. Just look for the packaging that says wild blueberries and you should be good. But if you want more information or recipe inspiration, definitely go to wildblueberries.com or check out the link in the show notes. That's wildblueberries.com or check out the link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the episode. What about outside of supplements? Like I know that you you got a fecal transplant, right? I did. I did. Okay. So Which like was... how did you decide that that was worth exploring? And I'm curious like fecal transplants, but what about like bee venom therapy or parasite implantation or things like that, like with these more out there alternative treatments, which I think people lean towards because when you're feeling terrible every day, you're just like, oh my God, I'll do anything to feel better. But how do you decide what's worth exploring there? Yeah. So when I was sick, you know, and I think something people don't understand is like the sicker you get and the fewer answers you have, the more you're going to try different stuff, right? Which which looks irrational, but I think actually is incredibly rational, right? Like, why wouldn't you do that? You have this instinct to self-preserve. So I tried all kinds of things. And my rule for myself was, I would start with the things that seemed like the least likely to harm me, right? And then I sort of, the sicker I got and the more dust, you know, more in need I was, and the more I had ruled out, the more I was like, I'll try that because it's who, you know, I'm not better in my life quality, my quality of life was really shrinking. I was getting sicker, sicker, sicker. Um, But I would try to read a lot about the various things. So there were things I read about that I really couldn't and still don't fully understand. Um, One of which was ozone therapy, which I did with a doctor I didn't trust. And it definitely, I had a positive reaction in the days afterward, but it's very hard. The evidence is not there for it. But then some science, I actually just talked to a scientist who was like, scientist who was like, this actually does work, but we don't know how to really do it in a safe way. Anyway, but the FMT was really clear that it has huge benefits. This is the fecal transplant, huge benefits. um, And the risk is pretty low. There is a risk. There was a patient who actually died in America after a fecal transplant. Um, It's a pretty complicated story, but you know, the risk seems actually very low, even though it's a major intervention and the, and the upside seemed really high. So at that point in my illness journey, it seemed very much worth it because I had just taken a ton of antibiotics to help get rid of the Lyme disease. And I knew that that had left me in a really depleted state where my microbiome was going to be in bad shape. And I also knew that the antibiotics were necessary, right? They really got me better. So the way I dealt with, okay, I'm going to take this really complicated drug that's going to help me and harm me. And then I'm going to try to do this countermeasure in a way and sort of starting to think of the body as a dimensional organism where you're, you're doing one thing and you're using conventional medicine where you can, but you're also trying to account for the ways in which, as one doctor put it, every medicine has a side effect, right? So then you're, how do you naturally cope with those side effects? And what was your, what were your results with the fecal batter transplant? Amazing. I mean, it made me really sick. Like it felt like I had the flu. It was sort of, and I called um, a doctor friend and she was like, yeah, you're, it's like an organ transplant. You're getting someone else's, you know, it's, you're going to have a massive die off of your own. And 
the whole process. And yeah, it made me feel like I had the flu. Like I had like deep, deep ache for a few days. So I, so I only did half of it. It's supposed to happen over a series of days. And I, I did half the amount. And that itself was enough to really make me feel much, much better and um, have more energy than I've had since before I got sick and got pregnant with my son a few weeks later and helped me have a healthy pregnancy, I think. So it, it really, I'm a huge, I really hope they bring this to all of us as a possible, possible thing. Can you explain a little bit about the importance of the microbiome and how that does interact with the immune system? Yeah. So the reason I, you know, if I had gotten Lyme disease when I was 25, or let's say I got bitten by a tick when I, right after I graduated from college, which is what I think happened. I was in the Connecticut shore. Let's say I had just gotten a bullseye rash and taken antibiotics. I would never have ever done the fecal transplant, right? Because I wouldn't have gone on this journey of learning about autoimmune disease, about dysfunction. And one of the things that I learned along the way is that the microbiome is really intimately connected to the immune system. And one researcher I talked to said, you know, it's almost as if they're like the interlocutors for the immune system, that the immune system and the microbiome, those little organisms are all talking to each other. And the presence of certain bacteria turns on certain kind of epigenetic actions in our body and just everything. And we don't understand. It's like, we're looking at an ocean and trying to you know, we're saying the ocean is good, right? But like, but why? There's so there's so much we don't know. And that's, I think, the risk of something like the FMT is like, we just don't know. We're just sort of in the dark ages of the science here. But we do know that you need a very balanced group of bacteria because in the absence of what are often called good bacteria, these other bacteria will start to act out. And one researcher I spoke to had a great metaphor for this immune system and microbiome are like a kindergarten class. And the immune system is the teacher. And if the teacher goes out of the room because you have a virus or you've got something else going on and the immune system is dealing with it, the bad bacteria in the class are going to start to act up. And then they're going to kind of bully the good ones and push them out the door. And then all of a sudden you have all the bad ones like egging each other on and misbehaving. And then the immune system comes back and can't keep control anymore, right? So it's just an image for this very delicate balance and ecosystem, really. So you said if you'd gotten Lyme disease like and just treated it, you wouldn't have gone down this whole path. Is the idea that all of this is could be prevented by an early treatment typically? So like if I got a tick bite and then did the traditional antibiotics course right away, I probably wouldn't struggle with long effects of Lyme disease. You probably wouldn't. That is true. So you definitely would be much better off um, for those people who can get prompt and ideal treatment. They have much better outcomes. That said, not to freak out the hypochondriac and you again, but what we now know from a really big study at Johns Hopkins is that even 10 to 20% of those ideally treated patients who get it right away end up with long-term symptoms. So it's a lot like long COVID, right? And why and who and all of this. We're back to the beginning, but yes. Yeah. But 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 very important to check for ticks, especially this time of year. The little tiny nymphs are out there. They're little poppy seeds. They're so small. Make sure you check for them. Yeah. I'd love to talk about the psychological side of everything for a little bit. I'm curious, outside of the physical, what were the most challenging psychological parts of your, you know, decade, multi-decade long journey with chronic illness. And then I'm also curious if there were any specific 
practices or mindset shifts that really helped you in dealing with them? Yeah, the psychological piece was just, as you can imagine, immensely challenging. It's um, it's hard even to talk about. But I, for me, by far the hardest thing was the sensation that no one saw my suffering, that I had no name for it, that in fact, when I went to doctor's offices, they were often a little bit dismissive and saying, this is stress, this is anxiety, and kind of incurious, really, right? Sort of, they had another patient to get to right after me. And I try to be really careful in the book not to put the blame at the feet of individual doctors, but to really show that the system is not set up for a patient like me and the millions of others who live with these illnesses, because we have really complicated cases and clusters of diagnoses, and it requires a kind of medical detective work. But what was so hard about it, Liz, was that you're suffering and you have the physical suffering, the pain, the fatigue, the brain fog, and then you go to the person who's supposed to be your ally and they're indifferent and they send you on your way. And it does two things. It, it makes you feel, you know, hopeless about ever getting answers or treatment or, and also it just makes your suffering feel meaningless. This is what I mean by the invisible and invisible kingdom. It's, it's, it's a willed invisibility by the culture, by people around us, but it's like they were rendering me invisible. And, and so it meant that my suffering wasn't even my own, right? I didn't even have the dignity of my suffering. And I, I feel like that's what almost killed me, right? The, the pain was one thing, but the loneliness of not being seen was another. Yeah. So how did you deal with that? I think I wrote a little bit about it. Even when I was really sick, I, I, I was so sick at my sickest that it would have been impossible for me to put together thoughts clearly in the way that I am, hopefully somewhat clearly now. And just to go and try to teach a class I was teaching writing at the time would just wipe me out for the whole week. So I would spend the rest of the week recovering that I would go teach. But what I did do at this time was tell myself, okay, I can't write anymore. I can't read. These were the things that had given me my sense of self, but I'm going to write one sentence a day, something about this experience. I'm going to get it down. And that for me was really, really helpful. Just the being able to step back and again, sort of try to distill and think about both what was happening and the story I was telling myself about it. That was really, really helpful. And I think more practically, the other really important thing was that it's really tiring to keep searching for answers, especially when you get dismissed over and over or not even cruelly, but just some indifference. And so I remember at a crucial moment sort of giving up and then having a, a second beat the next day where I was sitting on the couch and I was just like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if I can go on. And I had this image of there's just being this little pilot flame of myself that was still there because I felt a lot of the time that I was no longer myself as I had known her. And I just thought, okay, if that pilot flame is there, like I don't have to fight every day for answers, but I just have to like fight once a week for answers. I have to just do something once a week to try to keep moving this along and searching for possible causes, possible treatments. And that was really important to me because I'd been so exhausted by the searching and so demoralized by it. 
and you get kind of physically exhausted by it too when you're when you're that sick. So giving myself that permission to be like, no, I'm going to continue, but I'm going to continue in this sort of structured scope, and I'm going to give myself a break. I, I know that's. I wish I had more to offer, but that was really important for me. What is the state of your health at this moment? I'd say it's like sixty to eighty percent, right, of my of my usual health. So when I first got sick and got the autoimmune diagnosis, I went back to my doctor and I was like, "Okay, you've given me this medication, but I'm still sick. You know, not myself." And she was frustrated with me, and she was like, "Look, you're always going to be at eighty percent. That's just what it is to live with a chronic illness at best." And I was like, "Okay, but <laughs> I think I'm at like twenty percent or ten percent." So you know, at my lowest, I was really sick. But I will say now, most of the time, I'm probably between 70 and 80%. And, you know, months like this, when I've been doing a lot, it creeps down to 60%. Like you can see immediately the effects of changing my life and taking on a little more. So I live in a kind of routinized and regimented way that actually might look rigid to some, but is the thing that allows for um, a fullness of experience, right? Because I experience joy. I can go have dinner with a friend as long as I'm doing X, Y, and Z. So wait, can you talk to me a little bit about X, Y, and Z? We love like the routinized routinized? Yeah. Like we want to hear some of the practices. Okay. So, you know, I have to get up. I have to drink a lot of water, right? I really with the pots that I have, I have to just drink tons of water. I have to make sure I get enough salt. If I don't get salt in my diet, this is sort of a funny problem to have, (laughs) but I have to make sure I have like salty water often. Otherwise I get really faint and dizzy, but the bigger thing is just tons and tons of water. And then I do try to do like five minutes of meditation because I get in that place of just being very reactive and responsive. And then I, I try to really have a practice of finding joy. Like sounds super hokey, but I have these two little boys. They're rambunctious. It's totally chaotic. And I try to like freeze frame in the moment where I'm getting them out the door. And I'm like, and I just try to freeze frame all day long where I'm like, this is such a beautiful moment. That's such a beautiful moment. And it really helps me balance the stress of working and having kids and, you know, also being sick. Do you know Dr. Rick Hansen? No. He, um, so he's a, a psychologist who specializes in happiness and he talks about a practice. I had him on the podcast. If anybody wants to go back and listen to that episode, it's the Ask the Doctor Happiness Edition. But I, he talks about the practice of when you experience pleasure, moments of joy to just sit in that moment a little bit longer because then you're training, you're literally rewiring your neural pathways to look for the joy and look for the pleasure. So I just wanted to say it's not hokey at all. It's scientifically validated your practice. I love that. And I, that's basically what I do. I try to sit in the joy. I try to find the fun and the humor. And even when it's like totally chaotic and we're late to school, I'm like, they're late to kindergarten. <laughs> like, I never, like I try to turn everything it's into like something funny. Like I'm the mom who's like late to kindergarten every day. It's okay. You know? Like, yeah, for sure. So I, I really do try to do that. And I the, and the converse of that is that I think one feature of the nervous system disorder I have is that like my cortisol rises really fast. So like what I'll notice if I get a really stressful work email, like I just, my heart starts racing. I get very, very tense. Right. And I'm sure we all, I know from evidence actually that we all get this, right. There's a lot of data that like cortisol rises when you check your email and that's a stress hormone. So I do really try to practice like I breathe through my nose, I stop, I separate myself from it. I'm like, again, perspective, like 
often it's my own anxiety about the thing, not the thing, you know, I'm often reading more into something than there is. So I really try to create a lot of awareness and attention and non-responsiveness, reactiveness, right? A little more distance and, and calm. Lately, I've been uh, forest bathing is the term. I love forest (laughs) bathing. I love forest bathing. So even if I have like 15 minutes in the day, I'll drive. There's a little, I'll take like a 15 minute walk just without my phone or uh, notifications on silence and just around, listen. I love listening to little cricks and cracks and it's supposed to be really good for your immune system. So I'm very, very into forest um, bathing. And then, you know, I'm just like doing my best to kind of eat healthy and go to sleep early but you know I finish every day being like oh my god there's 400 things I need to do so a lot of it for me is about managing that sense of being overwhelmed (laughs) you're listening to the healthier together podcast Zach was recently out of town for a few days and my sister slept over because, you know, I'm in my 30s and the thought of being in a dark house alone at night still terrifies me. Of course, in the morning, I made us both glasses of AG1 by Athletic Greens and she told me that I have been talking about it all wrong. I listen to your podcast every week, she said, and honestly, she does. And it's so cute and it makes me so happy. And you do not convey how delicious it is. She told me she'd been afraid to try it because she thought it would taste vegetal like green juice when actually it tastes like some kind of vanilla candy, she said, or like really fancy bubblegum. Anyway, she's now addicted, and I promised her that I would tell you that AG1 not only tastes good for a nutritional drink, but it just tastes good, period. Like it is very enjoyable to drink. And then how you feel after makes it even more enjoyable. I love how much energy it gives me, especially since I don't drink caffeine, I often will use it as more of like a mid-afternoon pick-me-up to beat back that slumpy 3 p.m. feeling, and I feel so good after I drink it. Alert, but not jittery at all, just sharp and ready to take on whatever's next in my day. And that makes sense. AG1 has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods or superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that were specifically selected to support your gut health your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. And maybe even more importantly, they actually use clinically researched amounts of everything they include. So you're actually getting the studied benefits. I checked on that because a lot of times, even if it says something on the package, it's like such a tiny pinch that it's basically just marketing. It's got things like ashwagandha, which doctors I interview keep recommending to help with calm and balance, burdock root, chlorella, CoQ10, selenium, B vitamins, magnesium glycinate, a bunch of greens and veggies. It's just such good insurance that you're getting all of the nutrients you need to feel your absolute best no matter what happens for the rest of the day. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. And they're third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together. I love the travel packs. I keep one with me pretty much at all times. And the vitamin D3 and K2 is amazing. You actually always want to make sure that you look for K2 with your D3 because the K2 helps the D transport calcium to your bones where it's needed rather than calcifying in your arteries. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash healthier together to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get back to the episode. 
I do think it's so interesting. I, I was thinking about the things that stressed me out the other day. And then I was thinking about how many of them are like artificially constructed by me. Like I've put these deadlines on myself. I've committed myself to these things. Some of these things aren't even committed to like at this moment, this day, but I still have told myself I need to get them done by this day. And then I get overwhelmed and crazy. Do you have any advice for me? I don't know. I do the, I think it's called like the ninja structure where you pick out the six things that are important in your day. And I remind myself like that means that the other things really don't have to happen. Are those work things or anything? It's usually a mix of something with my kids. And I've told myself too that in terms of like being a mom and working, it's all so chaotic, right? But I tell myself like the thing I really love doing with my kids is reading them a book at night. Like even if I can't get to anything else and some, you know, lately I've been doing events at night and sometimes I have to do a little work. My husband and I sometimes trade off. But I just like really make sure I get to read that book to them. And then I'm like, okay, I did that, right? Trying to trying to learn to, have you been, um, I don't know if you ever do Peloton, <laughs> but Robin. I know Robin. I don't you do Peloton, Robin? but I'm a big fan of Robin You're outside of that. Of Robin. <laughs> yes. She has this thing. I think it's her where she's like the not to do list. Like what's on your not to do list? And I've been trying to just recognize when I'm putting stuff on myself and I'm like, you know what? I'm not feeling that great this week. I'm going to put all that on my not to do list and go take a walk in the forest. I love that. I also think like perhaps I don't want to put words in your mouth, but perhaps an upside of dealing with things like this for years is that you would have a little bit more of a sense of perspective. You would maybe be able to decide what truly matters in a way that other people might not. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think I do have a ton more perspective, I would say. And it's much easier for me. The one thing I've really learned that maybe is helpful is that most things, it just doesn't matter if you get to them when you said you were going to get to them. And actually pretty much everyone understands, especially right now, if like we don't do it when or as well as we hoped we would, right? And that also like we're scrutinizing ourselves more than than others are. And so I kind of try to live by the basic precepts of like grace and accountability and like, does someone really need me for something? Then yes, I need to be there. Right. And showing up with grace instead of like frenetic franticness or, or does that make sense? And yeah. But yeah, you, you, you just realize that we're here for a short time and what really matters is that accountability to one another, the grace with which we treat one another and the rest of it, you know, it will happen or not. (laughs) Do you have any advice for treating chronic illness and trying to feel as good as you possibly can without letting it completely take over your life? Yeah, I really live by the the 80-20 rule, which is that as long as I'm well enough, you know, I have my practices of like eating a certain way, trying to sleep, go to sleep early, trying to, you know, make sure I'm not standing out in the cold too long, for example. But, you know, I believe in the 20% that's fun. So the other day, I went down to see some friends and we stayed out really just like a little late and we had the extra glass of wine and whatever, but it was so fun and restorative. And I was like, this matters. And then I'll have a kind of crappy day tomorrow, but this mattered too. And that decision is so personal. And maybe you don't have the extra glass of wine. I probably shouldn't have. But um, you know, being kind to yourself as you find that 
practice too. I think I was really hard on myself at times. I was like, I've got to do all this. I've got to do it. I've got to yeah. be the perfect patient. And I had to learn to be the good enough patient. Like there's this idea of the good enough mother, like the good enough patient, like get the important things right. And then just also know that searching for perfect control was going to be its own kind of challenge and probably not helpful. Well, I think there's the question of like, what are we trying to heal for? Like ostensibly it is to live our best life. It's to have those nights out with your friends, to laugh and to feel social connection. So if you're denying yourself all of that in the name of healing, I think it's obviously a tricky balance because you do need to take care of yourself, but that's the goal, right? Eventually. Right. 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 And it's just been for me figuring out like actually if having a glass of wine is something my body pretty tolerant of, whereas like having a croissant is not <laughs> right. And figuring so, out that for you, figuring out what that is for me. Um, you know, some people really can't drink coffee. Some people can, you know, and I can drink like a cup of coffee and it just learned over the years to be a little bit more patient with that process. And, and one thing I think is hard about chronic illness that I forget is that it changes. So like recently some things have shifted for me, you know, um, for whatever reason. And so I'm in that exploratory process again of being like, okay, I'm actually not going to drink for a month because maybe half a glass of wine twice a week isn't working for me. Or I feel like maybe I'm drinking too much coffee or I got to go to the doctor and get some tests done. But trying to just, instead of being alarmed, trying to just be like methodical, it's hard, right? But like, this is the process, trust in the process. And, and then think about, right, what are those, what are those I think one thing we don't do enough when we're talking about chronic illness, when we're treating it is to say, what matters in your life? What, if you had 20% more energy, what do you want to do with it? What do you think would help you get to that 20% more energy? Right. And really breaking it down that way. How does pain impact your life? Not show me on this scale of funny faces, how much pain you're in. (laughs) Right. But what is pain doing to your life? What is it impinging on? Does it mean you can't go with your friends to the beach? Whatever it might mean. So I've tried to pivot everything to being really practical, if that makes sense. And can you just explain a little bit further why you think figuring out, like, I don't want people to listen to that and be like, well, I I wish I could do all that stuff and I can't. And that just makes me feel bad about where I'm at. What is the benefit to thinking about things in in that way? In a practical way. In in a yeah in a oh. way of like if I had twenty percent more energy what would I do I assume the goal of that isn't to feel bad about the fact that you don't have the energy to do those yes, things I don't I don't mean that at all but you know I think right we're talking about a range of illness I think some of these illnesses are so resistant to any kind of intervention at this present point so that's really really hard but in some cases and in my case for a long time except at my sickest there were good days and bad days so. But it would take a lot of work to figure out what's the good day versus the bad day. So one way I got myself to do that work was thinking, okay, if I can get to the good days, that means I'm kind of having about 20% more energy sometimes. So what would I do with that? Reminding myself, why am I going to bed early or why am I, you know, it can feel so draining to take care of yourself, right? I mean, we use self-care as if it's like a beautiful term, but when you have to do a ton of care to just function, it's hard and it's draining. And sometimes you want to give up and not do it all. Or, you know, I, for example, do best if I do take a walk. I have to sort of exercise within a very limited 
I have to do this very structured exercise protocol. And it's hard and I don't want to do it all the time. And I have to remind myself, like, this is why I'm doing this particular protocol it's to kind of keep my dysautonomia, like, not from getting worse, you know? Yeah, but you're so right that it's so hard to talk about all this without thoughtlessly saying something that's actually, like, hurtful to someone with a slightly different situation. All right, I have a few quick fires for you. So we'll see how quick we can we can make them. Yeah. Um, okay, let's start off. I don't even know if you have an answer for this. And I feel like this is just going to circle back to my hypochondria. But if somebody listening was out there and they don't currently have any sort of chronic illness, but they just want to kind of shore up their body in the best way possible so as not to acquire one, is there one thing that they could be doing? Sleep. Sleep is the foundation of everything in our health, I think. It's a time when your body does a huge amount of repair. It's a time when, you know, the immune system is at work. It's, we know from data that if you don't sleep, it's like a t- if you get tiny amounts less of sleep, you quickly end up at like a DUI level of, you know, function. So it's, shockingly fast how much our cognitive and physical being is compromised by just a little bit too little sleep. And we have this habit in this country of just sleeping much too little all the time. So it's really clear that like when I'm starting to feel run down, I will just go to bed at eight o'clock. And after doing that for three or four nights, I just start to feel a little bit better, you know, but it's also not overnight. takes several days. <laughs> you have to really make it a practice. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a second. And then I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was so bad. That was like a dad moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is the idea too, that we're like always fighting these little things. And if our body is equipped to fight it off before it kind of gets a foothold, then perhaps it won't become a chronic thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this concept in in medicine um, that's a little bit underexplored of this idea of homeostasis, which is this idea that your body wants to go back to balance that, you know, you get stressed, your immune system ratchets up, but it wants to go back to homeostasis. So the more that we, you know, we should be able to live lives where we get stressed and come down, we get cold, you know, we get cold outside, we come back in, our body temperature recalibrates. Like I, my body is sort of out of homeostasis. If I get cold, my body can't really get warm again for like 24 hours. If I get hot, I can't really get cool again for 24 hours, right? So you you do want to think about what are the pressures and strains on a body that lead it to being out of homeostasis. And what's really complicated and goes back to some of our earlier conversation is that it can be everything from viruses and pathogens to stress to life events and trauma has been shown to affect body and your body in complicated ways. So there's this powerful concept called the allostatic load, which this guy Bruce McEwen helped coin. And it's this idea that there's all these invisible things that impact our body, but most of the time, and that's the allostatic load, most of the time that load comes, but our resilience, our the very way we're designed helps us bring us back to homeostasis. But if that allostatic load of a virus and stress and you know um, food sensitivity that you're not treating and another infection gets too high or mold, you, the load becomes so much that you tip out of homeostasis. And that's pretty clearly what happened to me. I can really see that pattern over time. And it's why I got sick 
gradually and then suddenly fell off a cliff. So I think that's a really useful way to think of it. Not that like, oh no, I got a virus and this is terrible or, oh no, I'm having a really stressful month at work, but more like, how do I reduce that load, that allostatic load? You know, we all breathe polluted air, but like, do I have an air purifier in my house? You know, plants, whatever. You're just always looking for that balancing act. Sleep is a big part of it. That makes sense. If somebody is listening and they feel like they maybe have some of these symptoms that we've talked about, but they've never thought about it really or done anything about it, where would you recommend that they start? Oh, this is a hard one. I think I would start with your doctor, you know, just go see how willing your doctor is to explore, find out what the nature of that relationship is. Some doctors are awesome and really understand autoimmune disease. And some are like, I don't even know, or I'm not that interested in doing anything more than just a baseline set of tests. I do think that functional integrative medicine can be really, really helpful because they do do these like extra layers of testing. One really concrete example is that I had mono and no doc, my GP just never tested me for it, but my functional doctor did. And that was like a really important piece of information. So I, I think finding a functional or integrative doctor you trust, this is really hard because most of them don't take insurance. It's a tough one, but I... I think that they can be extremely helpful to getting some information. And they're often really responsive. If you say, I'm interested in finding out about this, um, reading online, finding some really good patient support groups, um, you know, doctors discourage us, we can all get scared, we can get hypochondriacal, but actually reading online was part of how I sort of ended up driving a lot of my own, you know, doctors to helping me figure out because I had read something that was like, that's my symptom. So I do think informing yourself in a way that doesn't trigger too much anxiety, that's possible. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about how we treat chronic illness on a systemic level, what would you do? I would create coordinated care centers where they treat the whole patient with some combination of conventional medicine and other modalities like acupuncture, like really good, really excellent functional medicine where the whole person is treated. And we talk about sleep and we talk about stress in your life and we talk about all this stuff. If you could share one message with somebody who doesn't have a chronic illness themselves, but maybe has somebody in their lives who does, what would you say? Like, what do you wish people had known about helping or caring for you? I think that the chronically ill people in your life are suffering so much more than they're ever letting on. So even if to you, it feels like, wow, this person talks about pain a lot, that means that person is in pain so much more than they ever even say. And anything that seems rigid to you or, or neurotic or structured, that's a survival mechanism and a coping mechanism. And so the most important thing you can do is in moments where you see someone struggling, stop and just say, I'm so sorry, I see that you're suffering. This is what one friend of mine said to me one day, she met me for tea and she was like, you don't look okay, I'm so sorry. I, I really can see that you're suffering. She didn't try to fix it, she didn't, but she just offered that recognition. You know, another thing that's really pragmatically helpful is offering to go to a doctor's appointment with somebody because it's really hard to take in lots of information. It's so important to have an advocate who can sort of vouch for you, help you be taken seriously and take notes. That's an awesome thing to do. Be like, let me come to your next doctor appointment if that would be helpful. 
If anybody is listening right now and feeling really helpless about their chronic illness, what would you tell them? Oh, first of all, I totally, I have been there. I hear and see you. It's such a hard, hard place to be. I think finding help wherever you can. Is there a friend in your life? Is there a family member, someone who will help you go with a doctor, go with you to a doctor and just sort of making an appointment with yourself to try that next step, whatever it might be, whether it's okay, I'm scared to try a functional doctor, but I'm going to, and I'm going to go to acupuncture or whatever it is, but it's really hard. There are people out there who really care about treating these illnesses and have a lot of experience and can help. If anybody is listening, I think this is the tricky thing about seeing people with chronic illness, and I've heard you talk about this, but that it can be scary for people without chronic illness to almost like confront that, to have to confront that reality. And I think even this conversation could be scary for somebody who's like, oh my gosh, that doesn't feel like a life that I want, like a life that feels good and it feels really scary. So I'm curious if anybody is listening and they're just really scared about acquiring a chronic disease or looking this stuff in the eye in this way. Is there anything that you would tell them? Well, first of all, like we all struggle with stuff all the time, right? And I think it's, there's no life that's without some of this, right? It's just, it's a little, it can be more concentrated in, in chronic illness, but there's no doubt that it's really scary and that chronic illnesses run the gamut. I mean, there are people I'm in touch with who are so, so sick and are in their beds and can't have lives they want to have. And this is just terrible, but, and it's scary to think about it. And it's sad to think about it, but I guess part of the point in my book and why I do this work is to remind us that we do have this moral and ethical obligation to witness and to be there together. And actually that there's comfort in that. And I think I was a bad, you know, when I wasn't sick, I knew someone who was, and I wasn't a good friend to them. I mean, they were, we were really close, but I, I just didn't understand. So I think anything you can do to understand and just show interest is really important. But I think we have a lot of power when we come together to try to make change. And so that's part of the hope here. You said there's comfort in that. Can you just speak to that a little bit further? Like for the person who's afraid to see, who's afraid to to do that, where is the comfort? I think the comfort has to do with something you touched on earlier, Liz, which is that your story you're telling yourself is worse than the reality in a way. Not, not worse than the reality of the illness. The reality of the illness can be quite bad, but I think we find meaning in the deepest kinds of encounters. I actually think it's those moments when we let ourselves experience and be present for the hard stuff with one another that that ends up feeling ramifying and like really painful to watch someone suffer. But also like, I am not denying that suffering. The suffering is there. And I think it feels bad to deny actually, right? So I don't know. That's part of what I mean is that I think that certainly for the sick person, there can be comfort in feeling seen. But I think even for the well, that just knowing that we're all in this together in some way um, and not shying away from it can bring a kind of deeper level of meaning. I also find that the more that I expose myself to the human experience, the more of a catalog of resilience I build. Like I am constantly shocked and awed by how resilient human beings are. This is the thing, right? And it's really incredible. And it, it doesn't, 
make the suffering go away, right? That suffering is still there, but it think makes it seem like if we're seeing it and naming it, maybe there is something societally we can do about it. We can say we want more funding into research into chronic MECFS or autoimmune disease, right? So there's things we that can come out of that act of witness, I think. Yeah, I love your catalog of resilience. Can you just end us on what do you think the future is of chronic disease? Like how will we be viewing it and treating it in a decade or more? Yeah. I think we are on the um, precipice of a lot more understanding. I don't know if it's a decade or or more, but I think we're going to have a much more clear sense of the ways that multiple triggers come together to create these diseases or clusters of diseases. I also think that in a hundred years, people are going to look at how we talk about the mind and the body and be like, what were they saying? Like, we'll just know a lot more about the immune system and the nervous system and how all this stuff works together. And I think there'll be something more sophisticated in place. So there's a lot we're behind in what we know, you know, but there's a lot coming down the pipeline. I've been excited to talk to researchers. Amazing. Well, everybody can find your beautiful book wherever books are sold, The Invisible Kingdom. Is there anywhere else that people can kind of look for you online? Uh, I have a website, www.meganovork.com, and we're currently collecting people's stories and putting some of them up, and I'm on social media. So yeah, come find me. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Megan. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. I hope you loved this episode with Megan. Remember to check out her amazing book, The Invisible Kingdom, wherever books are sold. Also, if you love this episode, please share it with someone in your life who you think would benefit. It's the single best way that you can support the podcast, and I appreciate it so much. I would also appreciate a quick rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, although to be completely honest, if I had to pick one, I would definitely choose you sharing a link to the podcast with anyone in your life, especially for an episode like this that's really diving into stuff that's so overlooked on a societal level. Literally just sharing Megan's words and sparking conversation about this stuff is helping move these issues forward, and it is so, so important. Make sure that you are subscribed or following so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We've got some great ones coming up, and I will see you next Wednesday on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. Okay, you know what stat blows my mind? People in the U.S. take about 20,000 breaths per day and spend an average of 90%, 90% of their time indoors. And that indoor air can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. Indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. I talked about this with a world-famous doctor friend years ago, and I was like, it is awful. What do I do? And she said, you need a high-quality air purifier, and you need to keep one in any room that you spend a ton of time in, which is why I am so excited to introduce you to Air Doctor. Air Doctor goes above and beyond the HEPA standard, which requires that 99.97% of particles at 0.3 microns be captured by a filter. Air Doctor uses an ultra HEPA filter that was independently tested and proven to remove at least 99.99% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. That is 100 times smaller than the HEPA standard. 
This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander. For any other pet parents who are allergic to their babies, this makes the biggest difference in my allergies with Bella. Highly recommend for that alone. This includes dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Also, if you live somewhere that is coming up on potential fires this summer, please, please, please get an air doctor so you have it ready. Breathing in smoke is awful for your lungs. And as somebody who lives in California, it gives me such peace of mind that I have my air doctor ready to go. We have a few, but if you are starting with one, keep it in the bedroom. That way you're breathing great air for at least a third of your life and it'll help you get better sleep, which will have so many downstream positive effects. And as a little bonus extra, it has such a nice white noise sound. It actually helps me fall asleep and stay asleep. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you do not love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code LizMoody, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. And this part is exclusive to Liz Moody podcast listeners. You will receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O dot com and use promo code Liz Moody.